Hello and welcome to another learning podcast from the PJ Pod. In this episode, we're exploring adverse effects from cancer immunotherapies. The number of patients eligible for immune-based cancer treatments has skyrocketed in recent years. It's probably easier uh, with immunotherapies these days to tell you which cancers they're not used in rather than ones they are. We've seen an explosion in the use of the immune system to fight cancer over the last 10 years since uh, epilimumab was first used in melanoma, I think in about 2011. In order to keep you informed, the PJ has published articles on some of these cancers, including bladder and renal, that have highlighted the place of immunotherapy in cancer treatment. However, these therapies can result in immune-related adverse events. Immunotherapy has such a unique set of side effects because it's really organ-specific. So we think about immune-related toxicity. So it's very much autoimmune. Uh, but most importantly, it's about patient choice. There's lots of different treatments out there. So what does the patient want in terms of risk-benefit, in terms of the side effects that they can get versus alternative treatments if there are multiple treatment options available in that particular line of setting they're being offered. In this episode, we've solicited the help of two experts to provide an overview of the common toxicities related to the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors and their presentations, and to outline best practice for pharmacy teams. I'm Caitlin Killen, the Assistant Clinical Editor for the PJ, and with me I have our Senior Editor, Alex Glavin. Hi Caitlin. Hi Alex, thanks for joining me. So you spoke to our two experts to find out what information pharmacists need to know about immune-related cancer toxicities. Yeah, that's right. I started off with Darmisha, who is lead genomic pharmacist for the North Thames Genomic Medicine Service Alliance and a specialist oncology pharmacist at the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust to get an idea of the impact immunotherapies have had on cancer treatment in the past decade. Cancer immunotherapy has revolutionised the field of oncology. This is by prolonging survival of patients who had rapidly fatal cancers across a number of tumour types. And one of note would be melanoma, in which there is now data where 49% of patients treated with combination checkpoint inhibitors are still alive at six and a half years. So we are now tentatively using, in some cases, the word cure. But I'd like to say it's tentatively. So clearly these therapies are having a real impact on patient survival, but they're complicated, right? Did you manage to get an explanation from our experts? Yeah, I think I did. So let's start at the beginning and take a look at the biology that underpins immunotherapy. Stuart Evans is a cancer pharmacist at Southwest Wales Cancer Centre at Singleton Hospital and Swansea Bay University Health Board. He summarised the pharmacology for us. If you develop a cancer, normally you've had a gene mutation or a mutation of a cell in one way. The body's defenses against any foreign object, such as a cancer or bacteria, is the immune system. And unfortunately, some cancers find a way of turning off the immune system, particularly the T cells, the T white cells, which would normally attach to that cell that shouldn't be there, like a cancer cell, and remove it from the body. What cancer cells do is they find a way to coexist with white blood cells. And quite often, cancers are actually full of white blood cells, producing all sorts of inflammatory markers, which actually aid the cancer in the growth, because cancer find ways of hiding from the body's natural immune system. What immune checkpoint inhibition means is that by binding to certain receptors on the cancer, you can actually, or actually on a T cell, you can actually make those cancer cells light up to the immune system and 
the immune system will do what it's designed to do and remove that part of the cancer from the body. Okay, so we've established the basics, but different immunotherapies have specific mechanisms of action, right? Exactly. There are three main classes of checkpoint inhibitors that interact with cancer cells. Here's Damisha again to break them down for us. So if we start with the CTLA-4 inhibitor, CTLA-4 is a receptor, so it's present on the surface of CD4-positive and CD8-positive lymphocytes, and they bind to T-cells on the surface of the antigen-presenting cell. So CTLA-4 binds to reduce interleukin-2 production and T-cell proliferation, and this will then lead to cancer cell growth and proliferation. So if you inhibit it, you will then enhance the activation of T-cell lymphocytes, and therefore that will stop the cancer cell from growing. The other drugs, so PD-L1 inhibitors and PD-L1 inhibitors, um, they are, so if we start with PD-1 first, it's a receptor, again, and it's expressed on a surface of multiple immune cell types. So this will include cells such as T cells, B cells, and natural killer cells. And then one of the ligands, PDL1, is present on different types of cells, including tumor cells, and it participates in inhibiting previously activated T cells. And then therefore that allows the cancer cells to grow. So if you use inhibitors, that will allow an anti-tumor response and stop the cells from growing. So essentially, you have to think that the cancer cells are trying to evade the immune system. So really, these inhibitors are kind of like saying, hey, this cancer cell is, is here, so T-cells come along and we need to attack this cancer cell. So in a way, you're trying to re-educate the immune system. So those are the three basic modes of treatment. But knowing which treatment a patient will respond to can be difficult. There's actually been a lot of work on how to match patients with the best treatment option using biomarkers. I guess with immunotherapy biomarkers, we can use things like PDL1 status or tumour mutational burden, or you can assess whether patients have microsatellite instability. And these markers um, can then be quantified and identified whether someone would respond to, say, combination treatment or uh, monotherapy, immunotherapy. Um, or even they need some chemotherapy involved in that treatment. At the moment, the data for this is growing and there needs to be more research into this, particularly different for different cancers. But the aim is, I mean, predominantly we'll be talking about checkpoint inhibitors, but hopefully we can use similar biomarker examples, whether certain patients will respond better to, say, TIL therapy or chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Treatment has now really moved away from the unreceptable and metastatic setting where the cancer has spread to other organs or is unable to be resected by surgery to using it in the adjuvant setting, so that's after surgery, or now clinical trials are recruiting patients into neoadjuvant clinical trials for immunotherapy, so that's before surgery. However, not everyone responds to immunotherapy and research is underway to find out why this is and whether immunotherapy biomarkers can help predict who can respond well to certain combinations of immunotherapy treatments. I guess cancer type will obviously also be central when selecting an appropriate immunotherapy, but what cancer types are these therapies licensed in? Yeah, these treatments are now positioned as a first line for many cancers, such as melanoma, renal cell carcinoma, and non-small cell lung cancer. 
And Stuart told me that they've had a real impact on patient survival. We've seen an explosion in the use of the immune system to fight cancer over the last 10 years since epilimumab was first used in melanoma, I think in about 2011. In renal cancer, renal cell carcinoma particularly, aminotherapies in the form of combination of epilimumab and nivolumab um, has seen um, the first real overall survival benefits. And it's a huge benefit of up to 20 months compared to what was standard of care at the time in a patient population who were uh, had intermediate to poor prognostic factors, which means they're higher risk of mortality. So with more patients than ever before receiving immunotherapies, what things do clinicians need to consider when assessing individuals for treatment? There are several factors that you need to think about when assessing patients, such as frailty, comorbidities, disease location and burden, and the treatment response that you're looking for. Here's what Darmisha and Stuart had to say. Initially, people thought that immunotherapy works quite slowly, um, which it does compared to targeted therapy. But if you use combination therapy, either with immunotherapy, targeted therapy or chemotherapy, you can get a fast pace of action from the drug. So you want to look at the disease burden. The other bit is presence of any brain disease or if there's any leptomeningeal disease. You want to be aware of what's happening in the brain, especially for those cancers where it does spread to the brain quite easily, such as melanoma and lung cancers. But you also need to have a look at how old the patient is in a sense of frailty and organ function. So that goes back to comorbidities. But there's a lot of older patients who can actually get through treatment really well. So we've had patients in their 90s doing well. So it's more not about their age, but assessing their frailty. One of the things that we definitely look for within individuals is whether they have an immune autoimmune disease already, okay? Um, because there's a very high chance that we will worsen that autoimmune disease. Um, examples would be things like multiple sclerosis, sarcoidosis, things like that. Um, other areas that we tend to be a little bit careful with is anyone's had um, uh, an organ transplant, because again, you, they, you have concerns that you may lead to graft rejection. Other than that, there is no absolute contraindications to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So lots to bear in mind about a patient's physical condition before using these therapies. But what about drug interactions? Are there any in particular that pharmacists should be aware of? Yes. Darmisha explained there are lots of interactions to keep in mind, including some that are influenced by the gut microflora. So there's evidence to say that if patients are on long-term use of proton pump inhibitors, because that can affect the gut microflora, in a sense that... There is research emerging that if you alter the gut microbiome, then you can have patients who either respond more or less to immunotherapy. And protopalm inhibitors may affect that, including things such as antibiotics as well. And that's going back to the gut flora. Because research in that is still evolving, what I do say to um, patients is to avoid pro and prebiotics because that could alter the gut microbiome and we're not sure how that interacts with immunotherapy. There is some data to say that pre and probiotics may actually reduce efficacy to immunotherapy treatment. There's also data from an Israeli study, an Israeli science group, and they have identified that patients who take cannabis oil supplements have reduced efficacy to immunotherapy. And recently in a paper published today, in fact, um, there is some preclinical data to suggest that paracetamol may reduce the efficacy of immunotherapy. However, more research needs to be 
done before we can actually say this to patients. But as pharmacists, we should have this in the back of our mind as interactions with immunotherapy starting to emerge slowly through preclinical studies. What about patients that may be under the incorrect impression that herbal supplements can boost the immune response? Darmisha was quite clear that patients should avoid herbal supplements because there's no evidence that they help. And in some cases, they can actually cause liver toxicity. We recently published a CPD article on drugs and pregnancy that touches on this, which will be linked in the show notes. But are there any fertility issues caused by immunotherapies? What's actually known about this? Yeah, Darmisha had some good thoughts on that question and emphasised the importance of having conversations around family planning when initiating therapy. In men, it's probably easier. Um, The fertility pathway is that they go to a sperm bank. (laughs) For ladies, it can be a little bit more trickier. I think it's more the question around fertility is is being researched a lot and it's immunotherapy. What is the long-term implications of being on it? So I think that would come out in like 20 years' time, for example, as we become more used to using these treatments. But I think the most important part is making sure the patient has that conversation about family planning with their medical team, because what you want to do is make sure that they look at their scans, look at their responses and look at the future outlook. And that is kind of a kind of two way discussion between the patient and their oncologist. Are there any other side effects of these immunotherapies? There are. From speaking to Darmisha and Stuart, it sounded like this was a really important consideration. There are lots of established adverse events that pharmacists really do need to be aware of. The incidence of adverse events with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors will depend on which immune checkpoint inhibitor you use. Uh, For example, epilimumab uh, has an overall adverse event rate of between 6 and 85%, uh, with severe reactions being up to 30% and it has a death rate of in phase three clinical trials of 2.1%. Um, the commonest uh, uh, adverse event with epilimumab is skin. Uh, PDL1 and PD1, when used on their own, um, have a similar overall adverse event rates to epilimumab in that it's up to 85%, but have less severe total numbers, up to 20%. When you use the drugs in combination, you can get up to 95% of people will have an adverse event in one form or another, and this can be severe in about 55% of patients. Now, when I talk about um, the combination, particularly in renal cell, being as high as 95% of people get adverse events, in that particular study, we also compared it with what standard of care at the time called sinitinib. That patient population had a total adverse event of 97%. And in fact, quality of life studies have shown that epilimab, nivolumab, have a better quality of life scores than sinitinib, which was standard of care oral treatment at the time. Within the group of adverse events that these drugs can cause, um, when when doctors actually consent to patients, if they use a Cancer Research UK consent form for epilimumab for example, the first box that you tick relates to mortality and death, so that there is severe outcomes that can occur with these drugs, but they're generally well tolerated. The common side effects include things like uh, tiredness, feeling weak. There is believed to be an increased risk of infection, diarrhea, uh, nausea and vomiting, loss of appetite, um, mild to severe skin rashes. So these side effects are really common, but obviously we don't want them to escalate and lead to patients discontinuing their cancer treatment. 
So what can pharmacists do to manage these side effects so that this treatment can continue? Yeah, there's such a wide range of potential side effects, it could seem overwhelming to stay on top of them. But Dharmisha had some great questions that can help a clinician start to identify a course of action. The first thing I would say is check the date of the last immunotherapy treatment. So when did they have it? And then does the patient have more than one side effect and what's happened with their blood results? The other thing is just to keep in mind that there is no washout period. So that will help you assess how quickly you need to refer. And even if it's a mild symptom, such as fatigue, I will ask other questions. So for example, I will say, do you feel really hot or really cold? Have you lost your hair? Have you had any unexplained weight loss or weight gain? So I'll start thinking about toxicity such as endocrinopathies and then take a thyroid function test. So when you see a patient and you know they're in immunotherapy, you would have to ask a succession of different questions to see whether it relates to a particular organ. And I think what pharmacists and pharmacy teams should be aware of is that the immune-related toxicities vary in the time of onset and severity and its underlying biology. And because it affects a broad range of organs, you have to think about having a tailored approach to each organ. One commonly affected organ system is the skin, with rashes being a common side effect. Stuart ran through the typical management for us. Uh, skin rashes is, is a good area to talk about because you can get everything from mild itching, for which something like um, a moisturising cream or some antihistamines can actually clear that up. And the grading system's partly related to, for example, the percentage of the body surface areas affected by the rash and the severity of the rash. So, for example, if less than 10% is grade 1, if it's more than 30%, then it's very likely to be grade 4. Now, grade 1 is easily treated symptomatically, uh, whereas grade 4 and grade 3 may actually need quite a high dose of steroids. And by high dose, it's actually quite scary, the doses of steroids that we use to suppress the immune response caused by immunotherapy. So, for example, it is not unknown in the severest cases to use up to two milligrams per kilogram of prednisolone to suppress the immune system. In my practice, the biggest dose of prednisolone I've ever prescribed is 210 milligrams a day for somebody who had hepatitis before we admitted them to hospital. So steroids, sometimes at very high doses from the sound of it, are an important intervention for managing certain toxicities. But what about the side effects from the steroids themselves? Yeah, that's an important issue, and one that Darmisha explained can't be underestimated. So we talk to patients a lot about how to report back if they've got symptoms of checkpoint inhibitor toxicity, but what we need to be better at is also counselling patients on their steroid toxicity. Um, so you need to discuss things such as steroid-induced osteoporosis, or um, steroid-induced PJP um, infections, steroid-induced weight gain. Continue to think about that and also think about steroid tapering. Make sure that patients are monitored brought back regularly into clinic for assessment so they're not on steroids longer than they should be. And if they are on steroids for a long time, so say for over four weeks and they're on 20 milligrams or greater, then they need to start thinking about the supportive medication. So for example, um, make sure patients are on proton pump inhibitors. 
make sure that they've been given vitamin D supplementation and calcium supplementation. Make sure they're on PJP prophylaxis in the form of cotrimoxazole so that you safeguard them from the side effects of these prolonged steroid uses. There's also a concern that high-dose steroids may affect the efficacy of immunotherapy, although research is ongoing. If patients are on prednisolone or an equivalent corticosteroid of 10 milligrams or greater, it can reduce the efficacy of immunotherapy because what you're doing is trying to stimulate the immune system, but the steroids are damping down the immune system. However, there has been data to suggest that patients who are on prolonged steroids due to immunotherapy toxicity did not have adverse outcomes in terms of their response to treatment. Clearly, the balancing act between managing these side effects without compromising treatment efficacy and facilitating uninterrupted treatment regimens is incredibly complicated. Are there any other skills outside of medicines management that pharmacists can use to support their patients? Yeah, I asked Stuart and Armisha about that too, and if they could provide any examples of what good practice looks like to them. One of the big things with those is actually signposting them in a direction where they can get the best support for that individual. Um, I've mentioned already about signposting to um, helplines within cancer teams. Uh, those people, uh, you know, general pharmacists, the pharmacy teams should be aware that those are readily available. And there's also within uh, within hospitals uh, that has cancer centres, there will be pharmacists specialising in cancer. They know a lot about these drugs. So if you ever got a question, it's quite easy to pick up a phone and speak to your local pharmacy. There'll be someone there more than happy to speak to you. Um, you've got to remember as well, there's also charitable organisations and some of these organisations produce fantastic support, psychological, financial um, for individuals. Um, for example, there's Cancer uh, Research UK, there's Macmillan. Education is really important for the patient. Um, there are so many things that could go wrong. They don't always, but patients need to be aware of them. Uh, all cancer units will give a patient an aminotherapy alert card with the common side effects that they want to know about immediately they occur. Okay, so it's things like tiredness, uh, things like bleeding, things like jaundice, uh, uh, anything that is of concern that they should contact the centre immediately. I think the main thing is patient counselling of the side effects of immunotherapy toxicities and even if the patient feels that the symptom isn't severe enough they should just um, contact the oncology team because if it's um, grade one so not severe and manageable then we can get on top of it really quickly whereas if it if you let it prolong it might get worse it's harder to control the symptoms or a patient will end up on steroids for longer. The other part is that if they do end up on steroids is make sure we do our steroid counselling well. So we're really good at counselling patients. So make sure we, we do that for our patients and steroids, in particularly how they should taper steroids. Um, best practice, I think, would be having steroid clinics because you can educate patients in a calm environment outside of a busy outpatient setting. Um, and also you can go through the steroid supportive care as well in terms of vitamin D supplementation or PJP prophylaxis. So you can explain to them why they need to take it and when they should stop. Interesting. And Darmisha mentioned clinics that are run by independent prescribers. Yes, Darmisha had lots of experience working in this area. And it sounded like these multidisciplinary spaces can be a really good way of sharing skills and identifying potential knowledge gaps. 
I've done a lot of independent clinics and I've done it alongside a nurse. So there's a lot of skill mix. So I would say best practice would be to work in a combined nurse pharmacy led clinic to ensure skill mix. Um, what I personally did was I did a physical assessment course because the toxicities can be so non-specific and additionally, um, it can occur in organs. So I was really worried I might miss some red flags. This idea of mixing skill sets is really interesting. Yeah, it is. And Damisha sounded like she learned a lot from working so closely with nurses. So I think diverse in skill set is pretty much looking at your patients and what they want from you. So when I had my nurse pharmacy in the therapy clinic, I learned so much from them because of the question they asked, because they do that all the time and they know how to counsel those patients. So in the nurse pharmacy-led clinic, we were really able to learn from each other and use one another's resources to actually um, build up our own knowledge. Well, I think that's a good stopping point for today's episode. Thank you for guiding us through, Alex. That was my pleasure. And of course, a big thank you to our experts, Stuart and Darmisha. Before we go, are there any resources we can signpost for our listeners that want to learn more about immunotherapy and its related adverse events? There are. We'll include links to our renal and bladder cancer CPD articles and other relevant PJ resources in the show notes. Great. And finally, thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Merck. That's it for today on the PJ Pod. Please do follow us on whatever podcast platform you use and let us know what you thought of this episode on social media using the hashtag PJPod. Until next time, goodbye.